Okay, so I didn't bring this out with me to begin with because I thought if I brought it out, all you would be doing is like, why is he bringing that out here? And there would be nothing to do. So you guys know what this is? A BOSU ball. Do you guys know what BOSU stands for? Nope. All right, see if I can remember this. Bionic Oscillatory Stabilization Unit. That's BOSU. Now, don't ask me again because it's kind of like a confirmation verse. I memorized that until I got out here and then... Once the service is over, I'll forget it. So, <laughs> task done. But that's what it is. And, you know, it's used in, like, fitness classes and, you know, PTs, physical therapists, they use it. And I've been seeing a physical therapist for some strain in my right leg. And, you know, one of the things they do at, a, at PT is when you show up, they, they sort of assess you, you know. And that one of the first things they want to assess is, like, your core strength. And so they have you doing these god-awful things called planks and... They want to just see how well your core is strengthened. And, and then they want to check out your balance and the strength in your legs. And so they have you like stand on one foot and then stand on another foot and now reach out here and do all this. And so I did all that. And so it's like, okay. She goes over to the corner, comes back and puts this god-awful thing in front of me. And she's like, now, let's step up on here and let's do some things. And if you haven't been on one of these things, you know, it's like, and I'm not stepping on it now. You know, because there are certain things that appear wise in the beginning, but that turn out not to be wise afterwards. And there's a whole TV show dedicated to people who did what seemed to be a wise thing and turned out not to be so, and I don't care to end up there. So anyway, so step on this thing, and now let's do squats, and let's do these other things. And you find your legs, like, just doing this, like this kind of stuff. And you're like, and you're, it's ridiculous. And so what she shows you is, yeah, maybe you, there's a problem, right? Maybe you're not as stable as you think you are. And when you step off off a solid ground and you come up here, it exposes your lack of balance. It exposes maybe where you're weak in your legs. And what I learned in doing this, as we're teaching through this series, it's important that you keep your weight centered, right? The more centered you can be on this ball, the more stable it is. And that's easy for some of us, to, to be stable on our feet, on solid ground. But when the world starts shaking, when things start moving, right, it's hard. And that's what we're talking about in this series today, is that we're called to be centered under Jesus Christ as the church. And to do so, we need to remain balanced underneath him. But we're not only balanced under him as Lord and Savior, our lives are built upon him, still centered on Jesus, on his teachings. But there are times when the ground beneath our feet starts to move, and it becomes harder to remain centered. Sometimes it's maybe an injury. Sometimes it's a, a diagnosis. It's an illness. Or maybe it's a job loss. Or maybe it's a relationship that just went sideways. Or maybe it's the death of a spouse or a loved one or a close friend. And what was solid ground now is like moving ground. And it just is strange. And it's easy when the ground starts moving to find yourself off-center. It's also easy to find yourself off-center because it happens so slowly, we can drift so slowly away from center 
that it still feels like the same ground. And as I look at everything, it's just a new normal. And I feel centered because nothing's moving. I've adapted to the new center. So how do we identify the fact that we are actually off-center? How do we come to understand that maybe where we are isn't where we ought to be? And also understand that sometimes we can find ourselves off-center when we weren't prepared for it. And so today we want to turn to Paul's letter again in the, to, Col- to the church of Colossae. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, and we're going to take that to the end of the chapter as you heard Laura read just a few minutes ago. And so we're going to look at what Paul has to say to this church at Colossae and to us as well, because the same thing happens to us today that happened to that church then. Paul starts his letter, or this section this way. He says, see to it that no one, no one takes you captive through the hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Jesus. Those first three words I want to draw your attention to, see to it. That word there in the original language has some meaning more than just see to it. See to it is take responsibility. You have a responsibility to see to it that no one takes you captive. In other words, have a plan. Be ready. Because there are forces, as he identifies here and earlier in the letter, that are actually trying to push you off center trying to drift you away, trying to call you away from being centered on Jesus' words. He said, so be ready. Make a plan. You have a responsibility. Don't just kind of go through life thinking everything is great, and then when all of a sudden you find yourself and the ground is moving, that is not the time to make a plan. The time to make a plan is before the ground is moving, before you end up upside down. That's the time to see to it so that no one takes you captive. This picture that he's giving us here of being captive, it kind of harkens back to the Romans. When the Romans would conquer a land, they would come back to Rome, the general would, and he would be allowed to parade in front of the emperor and all the Roman people. And he would parade his army, and following the army would be the captives, the people of this foreign land who would now become slaves of the Roman Empire. And that's the picture that Paul wants us to see. So don't allow yourselves to become captive. See to it that you have a plan so that you don't find yourself being paraded in front of these spiritual forces as captives. And they'll try to take you captive through this deception, this hollow philosophy that has no substance, that's not found anywhere in God's word, but found in human tradition. All these traditions are based in human traditions. If you take outside of Christianity, all traditions, if you take the leader out of the tradition, the tradition can continue. Because it's all based upon rules and regulations. And those continue. Take the leader out, and the tradition continues, except for Christianity. Because it's built on Jesus. You take Jesus out of Christianity, there's no Christianity because it's not built on regulations and human traditions. It's built upon a person. It's built upon God himself and his son, Jesus Christ. That's how you know if it's man-made or not. Is it built on Jesus 
or is it built on human traditions? Be ready, be prepared, because there are those that will try and knock you off center. So he goes on to tell them, he says, so you remember what we said earlier in the first two chapters, that Jesus is the exact image of God the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He's the exact representation. He is God, is what Paul says. And he says it here in verse 9. He is the exact representation. He's the fullness of Christ. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness, to completion, to completeness. There's nothing else necessary for you to be declared righteous in God's sight. Side note, we're talking about salvation. That's what Paul's talking about. Salvation, being justified. That word justified means being declared righteous in God's sight, without sin. Jesus did that. You are in him, and in him, you're complete. There's nothing that you need to add to it. There's no tradition that you need to add to it to be saved. There's no work that you need to add to it. There's nothing that you need to do in order to be saved. Jesus has made that possible. It is the faith that God has given you that saves you. It is the work of Jesus Christ that saves you. You can't add anything to it. You are full. You're complete. He goes on to say, so in him, in Jesus, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. How did Jesus do it? Through a circumcision of your heart. Your sinful nature was cut away by Jesus. He made it possible for you to believe in him. He made you a new creation by cutting away the dead the self, the sinful nature. Remember, he's teaching these Colossians, these Gentile Christians, to be able to combat Jewish Christians, or so-called Jewish Christians. They knew their scriptures far better than these Colossian Christians did. They grew up with the Torah. They knew the Old Testament. And so Paul is teaching them. He's helping them to be ready to have a plan, to combat this teaching. And he's teaching them about circumcision. And he's reminding them and showing them what it says in the text so that they can remind these Jewish agitators what the scriptures say, not what they say. And here's what he's reminding them of in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. It says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Circumcision is something that God did in the heart. While the male descendants were circumcised outwardly, it was something that God did in them as a people. Circumcision was something that pointed to the future, something that God would do. Circumcision was a seal. The true circumcision that happened within the Jewish people that would make them children of Abraham was the circumcision of the heart. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2. He said, a Jew is not a Jew is one only outwardly. When he's talking about a Jew, he's talking about people that are Abraham's children. 
not just Jewish by Jewish descent, but are children of Abraham. That's what he means by Jew here. You're only a child of Abraham, not just outwardly, nor is circumcision merely an outward, just physical thing. A person is a child of Abraham who is one inwardly and is circumcised of the heart, and that's the Spirit's doing. That's something God does in you in circumcision. That's something God did in the children of Israel. But eventually, they rejected it and saw it's something that they did. And so now they're saying to these young Colossians, this is something you need to do. And Paul's saying, no, this isn't something you need to do. It's something God has already done. And where has he done it? In your baptism. He teaches them the importance of baptism, that it's taken over as that right in circumcision. We see them helping, Paul helping these Colossian Christians, again, combat these Jewish agitators by saying, okay, let's go back to Genesis 15, where God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham and declares him righteous before the rite of circumcision. He declares Abraham righteous. He makes a covenant with Abraham and tells Abraham that I will uphold my end. And if you don't uphold your end, I'll still uphold my end and your end. That's the covenant he makes with Abraham. And he tells him he will make him into a great nation. And then we see in chapter 17 where he institutes the rite of circumcision. And circumcision was to be a sign that they were a covenant people, that they had been brought into a right relationship with God, something that God had already done in them. But then we see in chapter 21 that they begin to circumcise their children. On the eighth day, all male children would be circumcised. And by that circumcision, they would enter into the same covenant promise that God made with Abraham. It was through circumcision that they became children of God. It was in circumcision that God performed that circumcision, not just physically, but of their hearts. It was what God was doing. And now Paul is saying... What circumcision foreshadowed, baptism now celebrates. And so it follows that as these believers were given the Spirit and believed in Jesus Christ, they were then called to be baptized. But in the same way as circumcision, they baptized their children. And God working in baptism as he worked in circumcision, circumcised their hearts by the power of the Spirit and brought them into the covenant promise of Jesus. We see God doing that work. It's not the knowledge of the certain age that qualifies you. It's the work of God in your heart. And he does that, we're told, through baptism. We're also told that he does that in the life of the adult believer through the power of the Spirit. But it's God doing the work, not you. It's what God is doing. And what he's done, Paul says, that's who you are, full, complete, because of what Jesus has done. He goes on to say, that was done for you on the cross. When you were dead in your sins, when you were an enemy of God, before you ever knew, because you couldn't know. While you were dead, Jesus died for you. He forgave your sins. He canceled your debt. He took away your sins 
and nailed them to the cross. All of your sins to the cross. And in doing so, he disarmed the powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle of them. He, on the cross, they thought they had him cornered. They thought they were parading him. What they did not understand is that he was making a public spectacle of them. Jesus did that. We are his victory. Jesus did that for you while you were dead. Not because you were good, not because you had a certain bloodline, not because you were Jewish. Paul says he did that for all of us, the Jew and the Gentile. Even the ones that say there needs to be something else, he did that for them as well. And he's praying that through their witness, they could bring them to that right understanding. They could understand what it is to be centered under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, because of what Jesus has done for you, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are shadows of the things that were to come. What he's saying is all of these celebrations, the festivals in the Jewish calendar and the Jewish law, like Passover and the festival of tents and, or tabernacles, were all a foreshadowing of Jesus. They all came to fullness in Jesus. They were all a reminder to the Jewish nation of their need for a Messiah. And now Jesus has come, and they have been fulfilled in him. They in themselves were celebrations to be celebrated in the nation, not so that they could be saved, but to remind them that they needed a Savior. And they turned it upside down. They got off center and started putting their hope in the dietary regulations and the law. Paul says in Galatians 2, he says, if righteousness could be gained through obedience to the law, then Christ died for nothing. That's what they're saying. That there needs to be something else. And it's still based on human tradition. It says the reality, however, is found in Christ. So don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Because that's what happens when we follow after, when we're not ready, when we don't have a plan, when we're knocked off center and we're all alone because we think we can do it by ourselves. We step out of the grace of God and disqualify ourselves. Don't let someone lead you to that. He goes on to tell them, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, then why, as though you still belong to the world, why, as though you're still dead in your sins, even though you're not, you've died with Christ, do you submit to these rules? Why is it that you do that? These rules, which have nothing, which have things that are, are perishing with use and are based merely on human commands and teachings, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom and their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any any value in restraining sensual indulgences. Why, since you are 
dead in Christ. You have been raised to new life in Christ. Why? You who are complete. Are you falling prey to this argument? He's trying to instruct them. He's trying to build them up so that they will not fall, so that we will not fall prey, so that we can identify when we're off center. And he says the law will never bring you back to center. The law never declared anyone righteous. The writer to Hebrews says this. He says the former regulation, the law, the traditions, they're set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. The law, as Paul says in Romans, all it does is inflame the flesh. All it does is make me want to. When someone tells me I can't, that's just a reason to try. The law never made anything perfect. It only made things worse. It only makes you more aware of your sin. It only caused you to sin more. It doesn't make it bad. It, that's its purpose, to reveal to you your need for a Savior, your need to be saved. And he tells us the heart of it right here. You want to know what knocks us off center? It's pride. Both sections here in these last two sections are started and talked about them that delight in false humility. False humility is pride. I beat my body. I discipline my body. Not so that I restrain my sensual desires, not so that I could be made better, right? I, no, I do it so that you, so that you see that I'm better, so that you see that I'm stronger. I pray loudly in public for long times so that you see my righteousness, so that I see my own righteousness and feel good about what I've done. I don't need anybody else. I've got this handled. It's pride that takes us off center because we don't need Jesus. We've been convinced that we can do it by ourselves. Timothy Keller has a great example for us. He said, think about Christmas, and you have two friends that you're exchanging presents with, and your first friend comes and gives you a present, you unwrap it, and you open it up, and it's a diet book. And then you unwrap the second present, and it says how to overcome selfishness in your life. Now, he says to receive this gift humbly, you have to admit that you're overweight and narcissistic. <laughs> now, the gift that causes us to swallow our pride the deepest is the gift of Jesus Christ. To swallow our pride and admit that we cannot on our own, that we are powerless on our own, that we do not have the strength on our own to pull ourselves up and to make ourselves right with God. That requires the death of the Son of God. The gift of Jesus Christ requires that we humble ourselves and admit, we need a Savior. There's nothing I can do. That's when we find ourselves in the center. But it's pride 
that keeps us off center because we've been convinced by what seems to be wise teaching that we need to add something to what Jesus has done. See, the moralist here believes they can find salvation without God, similar to the materialist who thinks they can find morality without God. They're both partners in the same dance without God. The moralist says life is equal to you, is to me greater than I was before. If I want to be right with God, then I've got to do Tony 2.0. Right? But the problem is it's just like Windows. Every version has a flaw. Life, Paul says, is Jesus, period. That's life. It's Jesus that has set you free. It's Jesus that has paid the price for your sin, and he nailed your sin on the cross with Jesus. You are righteous in God's eyes. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed his sins from you. You are a child of God. Jesus declares it so. He's made you so. When we succumb to our pride, we find ourselves off-center. When we find ourselves off-center, we need to ask the question. We need to do some investigation into our own life, and we need to ask the question, why am I doing this? Why am I fasting? Am I fasting so that you see that I'm fasting? Am I sharing the Bible with you every chance I get because I want you to see how much I know about the Bible, or am I sharing the Bible with you because there's truth there? And am I doing it humbly? And if I want to know whether or not I'm slipping off center, I need to have somebody else who can help me see what I can't see, who can help me see my blind spots, someone who would lovingly place a BOSU ball under my feet so that I could see for myself where, I've, where I'm weak, where I'm sort of off-center. See, I need others. But the good news is, is that we're not alone. We have Jesus. His Spirit lives in us. We're not alone. You know, the thing about this ball, it reminds us as you stand on it that, you know, when things go upside down, when things get hard and the world seems soft and the world shakes underneath our feet, if I were to do the wise thing and step on this ball, I would do it by asking some, one of you to come up and hold my hand. And it wouldn't be as hard. And that's why he's given us the church. Because there will be times where the world seems uncertain underneath our feet. And we need a brother or sister in Christ there supporting us. And it would be good if more than one. Someone that who could support us in those times where the ground seems uncertain. To where we could be balanced and centered under Jesus together. We have the church. We have the Spirit of God living in us, and we have one another. We have Jesus, and Jesus is all we need. And we are the body of Christ. Next week, we're going to talk about what it is. Paul's going to talk to us about how do we recenter our lives when we find ourselves off center. Come back next week as we conclude our study in Colossians. Would you pray with me?